When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. The Normans, people in England have heard about the Normans because of the Norman Conquest, 1066, seen as one of the great milestones of English history. Transformation of England to an Anglo-Saxon kingdom into a normal one, with very different ideas about politics, culture, religion, architecture, and language. There were many Norman invasions, in fact. The Normans weren't content with just England. The Normans, of course, after England, pushed into Wales, Scotland, Ireland. But all over Christendom, the Normans made themselves felt. Southern Italy and Sicily, into the Crusader states of the Holy Land and North Africa. The Normans were a phenomenon a thousand years ago. And there were few parts of Europe, all the Middle East, that did not feel the impact of their presence. So I talked to Trevor Rowley about the Normans, who were they? What's going on? Why did this warlike people erupt from northwest France? Where did they come from? And what's it all mean? What's it all mean, folks? What we're always trying to ask on this podcast. I think you'll find his answer very interesting. So please check this out. Trevor Rowley coming up on Normans. In the meantime, if you want to go and watch some programs about Norman castles, then I tell you, I've got the place for you. You're not going to believe it. I've got this history channel. It's called History Hit TV. You're going to love it. You go to historyhit.tv wherever you get your internet. You go onto historyhit.tv. And then you subscribe, very small subscription required. And then you can watch all these documentaries, hundreds of hour documentaries, you've got Second World War documentaries, you've got Normans, you've got everything. You're going to love it. So you head over there and get involved with the world's best history channel. But in the meantime, everyone, here's Trevor Rowley on the Normans. Enjoy. Trevor, thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Not at all. Well, this is very exciting for me because everyone talks about the Norman Conquest in our little England away, and we think about Hastings in 1066 and the harrying of the North. But the Normans, there were lots of Norman conquests, weren't there? I mean, what is it with these guys? Well, I suppose naturally we concentrate on the Battle of Hastings and the conquest of England because this was a, a major event in British history, the beginning of Whig history. But of course, they did other things, many other things. They conquered southern Italy, conquered Sicily. They had short-lived enclaves in North Africa. They had a long-lived territory kingdom in the Levant at Antioch. And they even had little enclaves in um, Turkey, Anatolia, and in Spain. So they were great travellers and they were great conquerors. They conquered what they came across. Why did they do that? They, what is it with this group of people from Northwest Europe? No particular technological innovation? What was it? No, no, they didn't. They adopted and adapted. That was their great strength. They were great organisers. 
and they had the ability to see a good thing and recognize a good thing when they saw it and to use it for their own advantages. Let's go back a bit, shall we, and start with the Vikings going into Normandy, and they did exactly the same thing. They start off as pagans, and they then are converted to Christianity. They then build up the strongest little territory in northwestern Europe within 100 years or so. It's all very clever. And they do that by using what they find. They use the Carolingian basis, what they find. And they also import people. They invite people in, particularly church leaders, but also knights who they believe could fight for them. So it was a a very eclectic setup. They weren't just northern Frenchmen or Vikings. They were a big mixture of people. And it gave rise to this particularly strong, well-organized ethos. One of the things that pushes them abroad is because they were such an energetic people and they were working within the system of a hierarchical system, the feudal system, if you like, there was only going to be one man within that family who was going to inherit the estate. And there wasn't that much estate in Normandy. So there was a lot of pressure on them to get out, to go down. And so this is one of the reasons why you find them all over Europe. How important is that Viking heritage? Is there some kind of remembered lineage, seafaring, buccaneering? Because obviously there's a gap. I mean, they settle and become quote-unquote French. They swap their longships for horses. They become great cavalrymen. Does their Viking sort of three, four, five generations back, does that matter? Well, it does matter in the sense that William the Conqueror's great-great-great-grandfather was a Viking warlord, just like that, a pagan, comes in and causes chaos. So their antecedents, they, they start off just in that way. But one of the big questions is how many Vikings were there? It's a bit like the Anglo-Saxons, how many Anglo-Saxons were there? And we just we don't know, actually, but they left a big imprint in the folk memory and indeed the historical memory of the Normans. And they were proud up to a point of their Viking inheritance, but they also wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to have a much more respectable Christian heritage. And so they, as soon as they can, the Vikings are marrying into Carolingian French families and getting rid of all their ways. As far as the sort of cultural, I mean, in a way, there's always a sort of a racist element to this. But so if you say that, you know, because they were strong and fought hard and so on, this was inherited from the Vikings. I'm not sure this is true. What they did was that they got rid of most of their Viking cultural features very quickly. There was a slave market in Rouen right up until about a 1,000. And that was a definite Viking cultural inheritance. But they got rid of that about the year 1,000. They also lost the use of the Norse tongue for the most part, mainly because Norse was not a written language and they needed a written language. Obviously, they were going to play Western Europe politics and taxation and so on. So one of the later dukes, Duke Richard, sends his son to Bayer because there's still a Scandinavian-speaking element there, a school there where they're still speaking it. But for the most part, they're quite happy to get rid of all that baggage. But they, they are proud of the fact that they were conquerors in the first instance. And that does live on in the Norman psyche. And so it's a sort of quite potent harmony of certain Scandinavian seafaring amphibious ways of war and the Carolingian continental tradition of organisation and violence as well. 
absolutely. And they picked up on the cavalry and they advanced it really because they were the people who brought in Spanish horses, for instance, was one of the introductions that the Normans did. And they improved on cavalry during the 11th century. In the meantime, they more or less forgot about their naval tradition because they weren't fighting at sea during that period. And when they have to invade England, they have to sort of scrabble around and create a a fleet. Why do they take to their ships? Is this the Viking element? Why do they take to their ships? I mean, my memories of William the Conqueror is he spends a huge amount of time as Duke William fighting French neighbours. So why do they leapfrog Western Europe or the French and go much further afield? What's going on in Europe at this time? Well, in case of England, it's an inheritance problem because Edward the Confessor hasn't got a natural successor, or at least he hasn't got an immediate one. And William gets this into his mind, or we think he does, that he has been promised the throne of England. And so in order to take England, he has to revitalise the naval instincts and create a fleet to get to England. Later on, when they're in the Mediterranean, they become quite good sailors, but largely with the help of the Muslims and the Greeks with whom they mix. And again, the story of the Normans in England is largely of them assimilating with the English and the Scandinavians in England, and in the South with the Greeks and with the Latins and with the Muslims and taking on a lot of their strengths. Is there opportunity here as well? I mean, is there always opportunity in early medieval Europe? I mean, is there a window for them to expand into? Yes. I mean, I think the window in England was this conflict of who was actually going to take over from Edward the Confessor. There was a natural successor who was not a royal, that's Harold, who did take over. But there was a hiatus in some respect. And in southern um, Italy, there was a big hiatus because you had all of these city-states of different sort of cultural hues arguing with each other. And the Normans could move into this and take over. That's what they did, exactly. They they start as pilgrims, armed pilgrims, if you like, and then they're invited to help as mercenary soldiers, and then gradually they build up their strength. But there is definitely a hiatus in southern Europe with the waning Byzantine Empire, the Muslim Empire just beginning to be on the wane, and the northern Europe, the Lombards, beginning to push down as well. So it's a very, very confused but open area in which the Normans really played both sides extremely well. And is there a fortification technology point? I mean, the, the French are, the Normans are famous for castle building in England. When they arrive on these hostile shores, they find it easy to get a toehold, partly because they technology, the science of fortification makes it harder for people to push them back into the sea. I think that's a very good point. Certainly in England, as you say, the castle is the key to how they're able to hold the country. I think if they hadn't invented and developed the castle, they wouldn't have been able to stay. They'd have been kicked out. They didn't use the castle so much in southern Europe because there were already fortifications down there, which they were able to take over. There were castellate buildings and structure forts, which they were able to use. But once they get to the Holy Land, of course, again, you get exactly the same situation where they dig themselves in, building these massive castles, and they are very difficult to winkle out, and that's where they're able to hang on. Listen to Dan Snow's history hit. We're talking about the Normans. Not just in England, but everywhere. More after this. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies 
from stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. You mentioned they prove very flexible. I'm so fascinated as a kind of early modernist. I'm really interested in development of kind of national identities and loyalties. When these people arrive as overlords in Sicily or southern Italy or parts of Anatolia, do local people just go, well, there's a new boss in town, I'll just get on with my life? Or do they have to overcome this kind of antipathy of being essentially foreign? Again, an excellent question because I think to begin with, like all incoming invaders, as it were, they are resented and rebelled against, but very rapidly because they are so open to taking on other people and using other culture strengths, they rapidly assimilate. For instance, let's take Sicily and the kings of Sicily, the Norman kings of Sicily, they have Muslim advisors, they have a Greek navy and they dress in Byzantine robes, you see. So they assimilate themselves in a very, very effective way. But again, you do see that kind of ability of the Vikings to arrive and assimilate there because you don't get the Bretons doing this, don't you? You don't get the Count of Maine sending out his forces. It must just be they're well-equipped for this job. I think that's true. I think maybe you could say they just had it in their blood. They understood the best way of taking over an area and maintaining control of it. But this, in a way, if you think about nation states and so on, this was a weakness because they were much more interested in their family and the inheritance of the families rather than the whole idea of the Normans. They were particularly interested when they were doing their conquering and taking over of maintaining a sort of Norman way of life. They were much more interested in getting the land, getting the wealth off the land and handing it on to their successors. So in a way, this is not a traditional colonial activity because they're not intent on imposing Norman control in the strict sense of the word on the world. They're much more interested in power and wealth. Trevi, in England, what looked like this 
awesome takeover by William the Conqueror and his close family, close cousins and friends. A generation or two later, they're all at each other's throats. I mean, it's a complete shambles. I mean, William's sons, I mean, my God, those boys were fighting each other the whole time. And the next generation was even worse. So is that something you see elsewhere in this kind of Norman? You do, you do, because it is families fighting it out and fighting for the trough. It's the, one of the reasons for the end in Sicily, as it is in England, that you get family divisions, which then are expressed in military terms and they're fighting each other. And you end up with the whole thing going through the roof. And in both cases, it ended up with non-Normans taking over because you were dealing basically with female inheritance who were marrying into other dynasties like the um, Angevins in England. And that's how the Angevins come in. And they, of course, create an empire, which in itself is much stronger and bigger than the Anglo-Norman Empire, because that consists of half of France as well as a lot of Britain. Um, yes, yeah, so you're quite right. It is this family thing, really, which I think the feeling that it's the family which is most important, but that in itself leads to these great divisions, rather than thinking we've got to have a Norman on the throne. But is there also, therefore, I guess, this sense that if you're a younger brother out looking for your particular world to conquer, like Henry I, William the Conqueror's fourth son, I think it was, it's hard to then to justify... You can't then go, hey, no, we're very strict. Everyone, we're now primogeniture. No one mess around. Because if these new empires are sort of forged by ambitious younger sons, then it's quite hard to stop ambitious younger sons doing the same a generation or two later. Well, that's true. But he thought that his brother, Robert Curto's Duke of Normandy, was a weakling. Although he wasn't a weakling, actually. He fought in crusade. But he just thought he was feeble and that he could do a much better job. And also, he wanted the job. But you're quite right. How do you stop the next generation doing exactly the same thing, which they did? And does that mean that they have trouble building lasting legacies? I don't think so, because I think they make a major contribution, because what they represent in England is this big change of direction. Up until 1066, most of the cultural links had been actually with Scandinavia, although that's not to say they weren't with France. But after 1066, the axis of influence moves further south and east. And from then on, it's France, which is the dominant neighbour and which has the most important impact on England. And that goes on right through the Middle Ages. And you can look at things that the Normans introduced. Although I say this business of assimilating other peoples and so on. In England, they didn't do that in the beginning. They got rid of all the English prelates, all the English abbots, all the English gentry. They just got rid of them and replaced them with Normans. And this had a big long-term impact. Within 100 years, 150 years or so, this had changed and England was beginning to evolve as a separate place, Anglo-Norman England, if you like. But England is somewhat separate from what they do in the South and in the Levant. Yeah, I don't know anything about the South and that, but England, they seem to sort of move into a pretty impressive centralised state and just Frenchify it, Normanify it, I guess, and build their castle. It's amazing. But elsewhere, do they have a similar ability to produce very lasting, stable legacies as they do in England? No, I would say not, because what they do is create a Northern or Western European form of culture in the South which um, dominates and carries on. They get rid of the Muslim, they get rid of the Byzantine eventually. But what they're doing, they're introducing 
European. And that, of course, leads to Spanish and French, other French principalities moving in. And so there isn't a real Norman legacy in France, Italy, although I would say that the buildings that the Normans executed in Sicily, like Palermo Cathedral, Monreale Cathedral, these are some of the grandest buildings in Europe. But they're a mixture of Northern European, Byzantine and Arab. And as you, of course, point out that we're still speaking in a version of the Norman language, uh, Parliament and Exchequer, all these words, and judiciary are all from the Norman, and our royal family certainly traced their heritage back to the Norman conquest, and before as well, to be fair. Elsewhere in Europe, how lasting do their conquests prove? I would say far less so, although they introduce a French element into Sicily, but that is pretty quickly thrown out by the Sicilian Vespers, and uh, it's a Spanish influence, which is as strong as the French. There is a sort of lasting French influence to a little extent in the Levant, more than Norman English, as it were. But I would say that they disappear from the stage much more completely in those parts of the world than they do in, in England and Wales and a bit in Scotland. Why do they? Is it just the rub of things? Is it just the nature of empires coming and going, the way that great affairs tend to go? They don't turn this kind of Mediterranean world into a lasting confederation empire, whatever. Or was there a particular weakness that meant they would only burn brightly, but not for a very long time? Yeah, it's like a sort of flood, isn't it? Comes in and then goes. I think it's partly this business of being in family inheritance orientated rather than Norman French character. And that is because, as you say, of the waves in those parts of the world, they are largely extinguished over the centuries. Whereas in England, they have created a pretty sound basis. You know, we're talking about names, our personal names, Williams and Richards and Roberts are all Norman. And the liturgy in church, for instance, was a, a French one, but it was brought in by the Normans, changed by Lanfranc in the 11th century. Architecture, Romanesque architecture has a very strong place in the British tradition, comes around every two or three hundred years. And literature as well. This is heavily influenced by the Normans. But of course, by the time a lot of these things are rooted, the Normans themselves, as a political entity, have disappeared. Yeah, funnily enough, my son asked me on the weekend what happened to the Normans, and my head nearly fell off trying to explain to it. It's actually one of those, because in a way, they're still here. But I guess it's the point, that kind of adaptability. By the time you get to Plantagenet, it's Henry V starts speaking English. I guess they forged a kind of new hybrid identity. Yeah, they did. I mean, I think by the end of the 12th century, you're talking about the Anglo-Normans. You're not talking about the Normans. And of course... I mean, the Norman dynasty comes to an end in 1154 with the death of Stephen, and you get an Angevin coming in who's only one-eighth Norman. This weakens the whole Norman character. And I think the other thing is that Normandy itself disappears in 1204. Normandy, which had been allied to England for most of the time after 1066, is actually swept away by the French king in 1204. And so there's never really Normandy again. Normandy. The English do go back there later on, but they're not thinking about recreating a Normandy, <laughs> although um, the Queen still is the Duke of Normandy. Is it? Yeah, listen, I've spent time in the Channel Islands. They'll tell you that the whole time. She's still the Duke of Normandy over there, exactly. Well, listen, thank you so much, Trevor, for coming on this podcast and talking about the Normans and 
perhaps a wider European perspective as well. Tell everyone what's the book's called. It's called The Normans. Does what it says on the tin. Well, thank you very much indeed. Not at all. A very great pleasure. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've been in another episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.